super uh, excited and amped tonight, more than normal probably. Um, I hope you are. You guys excited to be here tonight? Yeah. It's a uh, happy January 26th to all of you. There's no uh, significance outside, but it's an amazing day to be alive. And uh, tonight we're going to start out by examining your thoughts. Um, I know that sounds a little bit Chris Angelish. I know it sounds maybe a little bit creepy, um, but I do. I, I want to I wanna examine your thoughts. Is that cool? Can we just take a, a minute? I'm not going to like bust out the, the deck of cards, right, and do some crazy stuff. Um, but I, I do want to get into your thoughts a little bit. So let's, uh, I want you to think about what you think about, okay? Uh, you, maybe you'll get that one later. But I, I, want you to, I want you to hone in on your thoughts for a second. And let's just, let's take today's thoughts. Uh, since I know most of you have about a three-minute memory, right? How many of you guys just admit shorttermmemory.com is, okay, yeah. Um, today, your thoughts. Would you categorize most of your thoughts, most of your thinking, in statements or ideas or perceptions that could most be summed up by something like, I wonder, or what if? Would you say that today most of your thoughts were questions, in other words? I wonder, what if? Or would you say that most of your thoughts today um, would go more like, I know, or I am sure? So if we were to put that in a different way of saying, we'd say, are most of your thoughts, the predominant piece of your thought life, would you say that it's questions or truth and affirmation? Now, I'm definitely not saying that one is necessarily a better than the other. What I am saying, though, is one is more taxing. In other words, the days that your a thought life has been dominated by questions, I would venture to say have been some of the most tiresome days of your life. Where you woke up with some predominant thought on your mind, some question that ate at you and ate at you and ate at you because you couldn't figure it out or you wouldn't know the answer until later. Anyone attest to that? I would also say on the flip side, uh, some some of the strongest days that you've ever had have been the days where like constant truth and affirmation is going through your mind. It's those days that seem to pass by quicker. It's, it's those days that seem to be stronger, right? Now, I will for sure say this about our thoughts. The most powerful days, at least for me, are days when I go from I wonder to I know. In other words, days where I've been pondering some question, whether it be deep or somewhat insignificant. And all of a sudden, it transitions from I wonder or what if to I know or I'm sure. Are you with me? Some of the most powerful days of our lives. Let me give you an example. Uh, this is the Bible, right? Like, welcome. And uh, we, we believe strongly in this and we'll uh, be teaching it uh, tonight uh, very extensively. Um, but if I were to ask this uh, group of people, there's a lot of people here. If I were to ask you what your thoughts are about the scriptures, like we could agree easily that every every one of you would have a different perception. To some, this is a burden. To others, it's a blessing, you see? Uh, To some, this is uh, like a a textbook, a historical reference. And to others, this is like the wellspring of life. For me, one of the most powerful days of my life was when the Bible changed. Uh, Let me describe. I grew up in the church. How many of the rest of you we just say, yeah, I grew up in the church from, from womb to whenever. Yeah, several of us. A lot of us didn't as well. Um, I grew up in the church. For me, growing up, the Bible was like, a, was like the Christian textbook, right? 
it was just like it was just like the church's version of Mathematicus, right? I mean, it was like the exact same thing. And and all of a sudden, though, at twelve, the Bible lost its textbook feel. And all of a sudden, it like I felt more connected to it. All of a sudden, the scripture became life-giving, and, and, and the scripture would affirm this about itself, all of a sudden it felt like the words of the Bible were written on my heart. You see what I'm saying? It was like all of a sudden this became not just words or historical stories about Jesus. All of a sudden when I opened this book, like it provided the truth that I needed to live. Now, why am I saying all this? You're wondering in your head. That's your thought right now, right? Like, I wonder. For us, as we get ready to dive into a new book of the Bible tonight, if you're just joining us, what we do is we go verse by verse through books of the Bible. Tonight we'll start our sixth book. We've been at church for five and a half years. We work very slowly to be able to teach the scriptures in a way that can help you A, understand, and B, study on your own. As we get ready to dive into, a, into this specific book called Hebrews. Any Hebrews fans here, right? Okay, Not, nice, I like it, right? As we get ready to dive into Hebrews, this book in particular is going to be such an encouragement to those of you that for many years of your life have had answerable questions about the scripture that you just, you haven't been able to make the transition from I wonder to I know. Some of you in here have had answerable questions about Jesus. And I'm telling you right now, Hebrews is going to take us on this journey answering so many of our deep, answerable questions about the Scripture, about the connection between the Old and New Testament, about Jesus as King. I'm so excited. Listen, I already said some of our most powerful days are the days when we go from I wonder to I know. I really believe that throughout this whole journey of Hebrews, as we're coming together like this, there are going to be so many nights where I pray you will have this moment where you're going from I, I wonder or what if to I know. I know better what the scripture is. I know better how to study it. I know better who Jesus is. And I know better what all of this means for me in the daily life. Are you with me? But I know that none of that will happen by just us gathering here. Are you with me? It won't happen by like showing some cool slides or just by good rhetoric. It will only happen if God changes our hearts. Are you with me, church? So, before we launch into Hebrews, I want to pray for us. Is that cool? I want to pray that God will soften our hearts, that he'll open our hearts, and that he will teach us, not me, not anything else, but that the scripture will drive us there. And I pray this, that in 10 or so months when we're still in Hebrews, you're like, seriously? Yeah. Uh, in 10 or so months when we're still in Hebrews, that we'll look back on this prayer. As you're sitting there, maybe in a pew, or actually down on Main Street, and all of a sudden you're like, I never realized that about Jesus, but I've always wondered how. I pray that we look back on this prayer right now in faith and say God has done it, you see? So let's pray, and then we'll dive in, all right? Uh, God, we desperately need your help. Um, if left to my words and my devices, God, we will miserably fail. But I pray like only you can and only your spirit can prompt that you would begin to change our hearts, that you would begin to soften us, that you would take some of these what-ifs and I-wonders and make them assurances of the truth who is you. I pray, God, that you'll do a work in our heart, and I pray, Father, that each of us will be able to look back on these precious moments and say that you are real as God and you're good. In your holy and awesome name, and all God's people said, amen. So open your Bibles to Hebrews 
chapter 1, when I forgot to put a page number, so when one of you guys get to our pew Bible on the page number, uh, give, it, uh, give me the page number. It's toward the back of the Bible there. Someone have a page number yet? 860, thank you, streeby.com. All right, now, anytime you are studying a book of the Bible, anytime, whether it be from the church perspective or in your personal study, there are three questions that you should always ask and first know before diving in. Those three questions are on this uh, upcoming slide here that Andrew will put up for me right now. Author, date, and audience. So the thing we want to know about Hebrews is who wrote it, at what time did the author write it, and to whom did they write it to. That will help us provide context for all of this. So the first answer on author, we have no earthly idea, okay? Uh, we, have no, we don't know who wrote Hebrews. You're like, well, this isn't off to a good start. Yeah, join the club. Now, now listen. We don't know who authored it, and scholars would all agree with this, primarily because the biggest person that probably could write Hebrews is is Paul. But But the way Hebrews opens, are you guys there? Hebrews 1, let's look at this. Verse 1, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Verse 2, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created. Verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the, of the majesty on high. Okay? That's the way Hebrews opens. Uh, Paul's writings open something like this. Next slide here. You've already seen it. Ephesians, Paul, an apostle. Philippians, Paul and Timothy, servants of. Uh, Colossians, Paul, an apostle. 1 Thessalonians, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. 1 Timothy, Paul, an apostle. Titus, Paul. Uh, Paul always puts his name on it, okay? So I'm going to go ahead and connect the Captain Obvious, you know, for you. Uh, in Hebrews, we have a whole different feel here. And so most theologians and scholars would agree this isn't Paul's work. So if it's not Paul's work, and unfortunately the author never mentions themselves in Hebrews, all we know about the author is in verse 13, the author knows Timothy. <laughs> okay? So we know the author knows Timothy, which it, Paul knows as well, because Timothy is Paul's disciple. We also know that, uh, that the, the writer um, knows who he's writing to, because he says in uh, chapter 13, I'll probably meet up with you again someday. But that's what we know. Okay? So some people think it's Apollo, some people think it's Luke, some people think it... We're calling it the Holy Spirit tonight. The Holy Spirit wrote Hebrews. Are we together on that? Okay? All right, next slide. The next question is, what date? Uh, we don't know that either. Um, here's what we do know. This is the first time this has ever happened. Seriously, Hebrews puzzles scholars. Except when it comes to doctrine and theology. And what you're going to see is once we get into Hebrews, it affirms every one of Paul's teaching and almost takes it to another level in some cases. So it wouldn't be in the canon. In other words, it wouldn't be in the Bible if it uh, taught anything against Scripture, especially because we don't know the author, but all it does is affirm other biblical truths. Now, uh, Jesus dies and is resurrected in 30 A.D. The Jerusalem temple falls in 70 A.D. So there's our bracket, okay? We know some, then we know it's between, uh, after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, 30 A.D., we also know it's before the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. because uh, the, 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 the scripture here in Hebrews makes reference to the temple. So between those 40 years, let's say. Now, I will make a guess because that's what we can do here, all right? I'm going to say just by my evidence, and, and some other scholars would agree with this. I'm definitely not a scholar, but they would agree with, you get it, okay? It, I'm going to say between 55 and 65 A.D. Now, in some, in some cases, that's really significant. In this, I, I don't really think it, it tremendously is. Now, lastly, 
Who's the audience? Uh, now, this one doesn't have a question mark on it. This one we know for sure. Uh, the book is called what? Hebrews. Now, Hebrews means, uh, can mean a couple different things. But in this case, it means Jewish. Now, if you read Hebrews, what you'll find is this letter is clearly directed to a particular group of Jews. That group is Christians. The audience of Hebrews is Jewish Christians. Now, this should, this should enthrall you, and it definitely does me. Let me explain. If you grow up as a Jew, do you understand the cultural implications of being Jewish? Uh, again, for some of us who grew up in the church, it kind of touches it because you just grow up in this church culture. Like you learn a lot of the rhetoric and you know how to wear the Christian t-shirts and you know where the bumper stickers go. And it's kind of the subculture. Like take that times about 50. When you're born as a Jew, you're instantly grafted in this cultural, religious thing that adjoins at itself all the festivals, all the religious piety, all of this life that all centers around this nation of Israel. All going way back to its father Abraham. So as a Jew, you're born into this. It becomes a part of you. So much so that your father's father and your father's father's father and everyone down. It just adheres to this Jewish culture. But the one thing about Jewish culture is, they would say that they were waiting on the Messiah. They're waiting on this one that would come and redeem the people. That's what they were waiting on the whole Testament. Right? God saved them from slavery in Egypt. And then the rest of the Old Testament, they're waiting on the Messiah to come. Problem is, they're waiting on a militant Messiah for the most part. The Romans have oppressed the Israelites, and what they want, most of them, is they want a militant Messiah to come down, wipe out all the Romans, grenade launch style, and give them, again, the place of, of, um, of kind of, I think, power, we could say, that they maybe thought they once had. So when Jesus comes, and his message is love... <laughs> And serving others. And he's like interacting with the Romans and not killing anyone. This creates a rift. Especially with the religious leaders of the Jewish culture and sect. Are you with me? They were expecting a militant Messiah. Jesus comes and says, I'm the servant. I'm here to love people. I'm here to be the least of all. And so the religious leaders, they were like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You must not be the Messiah. Though, ironically, they were looking the Messiah in the face. Right? And so what happens is, Jesus dies, resurrects, and most Jews think that Jesus wasn't the Son of God and wasn't the Messiah. Some did. And this letter is written to some of those folks. But I want to explain something to you. Do you understand how hard accepting this new way of Christ would have been as a Jew. I think a lot of times, like, I was just like, are you serious? You're God's people. And then Jesus shows up, what's your problem? You know? He walks around, he's healing people, he's saying, I'm the son of God, why couldn't you adhere to this? It's because all of their life they had been trained and indoctrinated with all of this religious way of living that when Jesus comes and doesn't meet their expectations or the way that they had formed God in their mind, they're just like, you must not be him. Do you understand then how hard it would be when Jesus comes and says, I know you've been following all of this law back here, 
and I know that you've been uh, making animal sacrifice for atonement for sin, let me tell you something. I'm the fulfillment of the law now. Now you serve me. All these ceremonies and festivals and all of these things that you've been a part of, now all of the focus is on me as Christ. Do you understand how difficult it would have been to relinquish all of this cultural understanding of, of Judaism and just say, yes, now it's Christ, you get it. it, it it's like this, and I, maybe this will work. Um, have any of you guys seen your grandparents texting anyone? Right? Have any of you guys seen that? You see, like you look out, you're over at grandpa and grandma's house and all of a sudden grandpa whips out his phone and he's like throwing down on the droid. Have you guys seen that? Right? Have you? No? All right. Like, I, I love my grandma. Oh, my, uh, my, my dad and his brothers and sisters hooked her up with one of the, the like it's kind, of, it's kind of a computer, but it hooks up to your phone line and all it does is send an email. And I love like watching her rock on that, you know. But for the, for the older generation, and this will be for us too, and I'll talk about that here in a second, it's so difficult to like once you've been ingrained in a certain way of living and culture without all of this crazy high-speed technology to then all of a sudden be handed a phone, right, let alone a cell phone that used to be the size of your face. Like now it's like this little thing that they can barely even see, and then they're supposed to like communicate and text. Completely difficult. When, when we're older, we'll be like, dude, the MP3, have you heard of it, right? Blu-ray, Right? Like, we'll be, we'll be bringing up all these old school things. By then, we'll have some chip in our neck. You know what I'm saying? It'll just be portraying 3D on the wall or something, right? It's, it's so incredibly difficult once you've been ingrained in a particular kind of culture to all of a sudden relinquish that and say the new way is better. Uh, my grandpa always used to say, new doesn't mean it's better. The whole purpose of Hebrews is the new is better. Are you with me? And here's what happens. This sect of Jews, Christian Jews, they're being persecuted. If you came to Christ as a Jew, your family ostracized you. If you believe that Jesus was the Messiah as a Jew, you are kicked out of all of this cultural understanding. So they're being persecuted, and listen, they're struggling releasing the old way. Though they've come to Christ, they find themselves keep leaning to the old. I know the new is good, but the old is what I know. And here's where Hebrews is so pertinent to us, isn't it, church? You start relationship with Jesus. He makes us a new creation. Then why do we get sucked into the old man so quickly? Why do we so quickly find ourselves feasting from the faucet of flesh so quickly again when the new is better. This whole book of Hebrews is right where we're at. We have to release the old, claim victory in the new, though it's difficult, and say now Christ is my focus. Not religion, not some moral understanding of Christianity, but the person of Christ. You see, so... Author, we don't know. Date, we're not really sure. The audience, Jewish Christian. So the whole time we're studying this, you need to understand this from a framework of, okay, he's writing to persecuted Jews who believe in Jesus, who are having difficulty relinquishing all of the old stuff. The laws, the ceremonies, the festivals. The whole book of Hebrews is attacking that. We together? 
All right, let's look again at the first part of these of three verses. That's what we're going to study tonight, all of three verses. You're like, seriously? Yes, I am. Verse 1. Long ago. This, this starts out like a movie, man. This is great. It's like, I love this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Now, to help us understand what he's saying here at the first part of Hebrews, I've, I've, made, I've made a graph with green colors. It's really cool. All right. Now, the first thing that he says about the era is this. He says, long ago, we were spoken to by a particular uh, group of people, but now in these last days. So he's making this transition. Long ago, the old, but now in these last days, all of a sudden, there's a newer communication, right? Well, what does he mean by in these last days? The fulfillment of Christ coming as the Messiah. These last days, the beauty of Jesus has come. That's the era. The recipients, next slide. Uh, the scripture says in Hebrews, the first recipient, the old recipient, is to our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all of the background of the Israelites. These people were the recipients of the message. And now the recipients are, are us. Do you see how significant this is for, for a Jewish Christian? Where all your life, listen, your faith has been based upon this thing that started back at Abraham. Are you with me? And now all of a sudden, this whole message has gotten personal. How? Through the agents. The old agent, the old a communication, next slide, was through the prophets. Now a prophet is someone who talks to the people from God. In other words, represents God uh, to the people. A priest is someone who represents the people to God. So the old agent was prophets. They would speak to the people on behalf of God and communicate all kinds of things that, what does the first verse say? God was what? God was speaking. The writer of Hebrews is assuming that all of his readers will understand that God speaks. And the one thing that's been consistent of all of time is that God spoke then and God speaks now. It's just the agent has changed. The old was through the prophets and now it's by his son. Jesus comes, is incarnated, and now speaks to the people on behalf, on behalf of God through Christ. The ways, the older communication, was in various ways. That's a good way of summing it up. What, what are the various ways in the Old Testament? Think about it. We've got crazy all kinds of signs, all kinds of miracles, all kinds of ways that God spoke to the Old Testament saints, but now, one way, through His Son. The whole theme of Hebrews is Jesus is better. The old way was necessary. We don't obliterate the old way. It's just Jesus fulfilled the old way. It's just Jesus, like I said a few weeks ago, is the better Abraham, is the better Isaac, is the better Jacob, is the better Daniel. And so since Jesus is the better way, then whatever Jesus did, we must really adhere to. Amen? Now, here's what he does. Listen. He makes seven statements about Jesus. Let's back up a second. Um, 
I know it's easy in church sometimes to think that it's about something else outside of Christ. The strum of a guitar, fellowship. Can I just say this? The whole reason why, why we're here is the person of Christ. And so, if in the scripture, all of a sudden, the, the writer focuses all of his attention on who Jesus is, your ears better perk up, your heart better be warmed, and you better say, like, teach me, because I want to learn more. So the writer says seven statements about Jesus. The first is this. Jesus is the heir of all things. Um, so let's talk in our terms. Um, many of you have parents that have estates, okay? They have certain things that one day, and we don't want to be morbid about it, maybe some of you do, right? You're like, I know, but, you know, my daddy's got like 10 million, you know, whatever, all right? One day, when your parents pass away, oftentimes the eldest is called, is called the heir. They'll receive the inheritance, now, this seems like a, a nice statement, doesn't it? Oh, this is nice. Jesus is the heir of all things. Do you guys understand what that means? What he's saying to these Jewish Christians is Jesus is the heir of all things, and that means something for you, reader. Look at this in Romans. Unbelievable passage. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The reason why the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is the heir of all things, because, because Jesus is the heir, it makes believers of Christ the heir. Co-heirs with Christ. Could there be any greater of a promise outside of just grace and mercy? Believers in Christ are awaiting the inheritance that doesn't come from an earthly father in wealth and possessions, but comes in the form of eternity, of life. Of a, of a lifelong, eternal uh, pursuit of worshiping God on our faces together. Do you get that? The readers would have understood that. The heir of all things, that's G- that means that we're, we're co-heirs with Christ. That means we'll inherit as well. And so the readers would have been encouraged. Yes, Christ, the old, yes, the new way is amazing. The second thing he says is this, the second statement. Everything was created through Jesus. Hold on a second. If Jesus is the heir of all things, it gives this picture that he's the eldest son, right? But if he created all things, now all of a sudden we get an amazing portrayal of the Trinity, you see? If he was the heir, it, it like paints this natural like lineage of God, son, spirit maybe. But if all things were created through Christ... Then it's, it, it, he's not just the son, but he's also the heir and he's also the creator. And so now we see the inworkings of the Trinity. That God is Father, that God is Son, and that God is Spirit. Do you see? The readers would have been wrestling with this because the big picture of God in their minds was Father God. Fear him. Father God speaks. Father God comes. But if Jesus was creator too, listen. Then all of a sudden, an impersonal universe gets incredibly personal. A vast void, huge creation. Do you get this? Just like the air affects you, now all of a sudden, because Christ created, 
it means the vastness of creation becomes personal with you. It's why if you're a Christian, sometimes you've brought attention to yourself because you've been in like a public setting where it's really beautiful and you just break out into song like, or dance or whatever, you know? Have you ever done that before? I do it all the time. I mean, I'll be like down on the riverfront sometime and I'll be like, I wish no one was here right now because I would just like run up and down the streets. Like, this is so gorgeous. It's because something, and no one else? Okay, well, I love doing that. So maybe we can make it a date sometime, right? We'll just go down and dance somewhere just in the beauty of creation. But the reason I love that is because there's something in me when I'm in beautiful places that I don't feel like is disconnected from me. Do you see, you see what I'm saying? Because Jesus created and because Jesus has made way for me and you to God, then the beauty of creation becomes personal. So when we're in beautiful moments, all of a sudden this creation... Let me show you another passage here before I get too worked up. John, chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. It affirms that Jesus wasn't an afterthought, that Jesus was in the beginning, and that all of the things created have also gone through Christ. Phenomenal portrayal of the Trinity. Phenomenal portrayal for you of the personal connection with Jesus. The third thing that he says here in Hebrews is that Jesus embodies the glory of God. Now, listen, this is crazy. If you're a Jew, come on. If you're a Jew, what's your understanding of the glory of God? Somebody, just throw it out there. Think Old Testament. Think like first five books of the Bible. If you're a Jew, yeah, Moses couldn't what? He couldn't see God, remember? Moses couldn't see God. In fact, he could only see like the backside of God, the glory of God, the splendor of God. What glory implies in the Greek here is like the shining, the bursting forth light that comes out. Moses couldn't see God. And yet Jesus comes, fully God, fully man, walks on the earth, and the writer in Hebrews says, embodies the glory of God. All of a sudden, the same Jewish people who thought, no, God is this disconnected being, becomes so personal that his disciples who are Jews look Jesus in the eye. Do you get this? So for all of a sudden, them to get this understanding of the old is gone and the new has come, a big piece of it is, is Jesus re- reveals the glory of God. When you see Jesus, when you hear Jesus, when you watch Jesus serve and love and encourage, what you're getting the portrayal of is God's glory. Is God's glory is no longer hidden. The fullness of it awaiting. Are you with me? Jesus said in himself, the kingdom is now and yet to come. We're still waiting for the fulfillment, the fullness of the kingdom of God in the last days. But the embodiment of the glory of God, unbelievable. The fourth statement that he makes in Hebrews. Jesus reveals the character of God. Uh, the Greek word here is charakta. And this Greek word, listen, it implies like, how many of you guys do stamping up? How many of you females, you're, you're like stamping up, you do a bunch of stamps. Any of you guys? I know that was big around Matthias back in the day. We got one, two. I know my wife just said, hey, can we sell my stamping up stuff on Craigslist? I was like, right on, right? Because this thing weighs like a million, I don't even, you know, she has like a million, I don't even understand stamps. Like, how do you do it? I don't know. But listen, the Greek word here implies this. And I, I guess, you know, when you stamp, you guys know, you hit the pad thing, and then you put it somewhere. You guys understand? Well, in, in, in the ancient times, 
it worked the exact same way. What you would do is you would take a stamp and you would stick it in dye and then you would impress it on something else. And so in Hebrews, look at here in, in, in uh, chapter 1 verse 3, when he says he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, that's the understanding. Is Jesus is that, that dye from the stamp of God. He's the exact imprint of God's nature. What would that mean to the Jewish Christians? They had heard stories about Jesus uh, sitting and just listening to people. They had heard stories about miracles. Jesus is walking through Jericho and the blind man Bartimaeus comes up and says, Son of David, have mercy on me. They knew that story. They had heard about uh, stories where Jesus was uh, with uh, the, women at the, the woman at the well, engaging, interacting. They had heard about a story where this uh, buyer, this funeral procession, is going by with, with the widow and her son is dead. And Jesus walks over to the casket and touches the casket and the son raises. Listen, do you understand that for a Jew, God was so distant and impersonal? And if Jesus is the imprint of the nature of God, then do you understand how their minds are shifting if Jesus is compassionate, then God is compassionate. If Jesus is loving, then God is loving. If Jesus is caring, if Jesus listens, if Jesus serves, then God does too. And for a Jewish Christian, for you. All of a sudden, they were getting a biblical understanding of God and not something they had made up in their mind, which is who many of the gods that you serve are. You say you worship God, you say you serve Christ, and yet you don't study the scripture. And so you end up creating this image of God in your mind that's convenient for you, who you can understand, who you can serve, who can speak to you, who can be personal to you. Well, it's not the God of the scriptures. I implore you, as the writer of Hebrews does here, Jesus needs to be our focal point for understanding the character of God. Amazing stuff. The, the fifth thing here that we see. Did you know? <laughs> I'm not a geometrist, but the earth sits at um, 23 degrees. And is it and a half or 23 degrees? Okay. If that axis tilted a little bit, do you understand what would happen? If we were a little bit closer to the sun or a little bit farther from the sun, do you, do you understand what would happen? If all of a sudden, like, the Earth's orbit changed a little bit, do you, do you realize what would happen? It's funny to me that some people say that, like, all of this just was one day just exploded into existence, into perfection. Like, the, the Earth would just be that, and all of a sudden human life could... Jesus is all-powerful in that he holds the universe together. It's not just the portrayal of God, but in the deep understanding of the Trinity, it's Christ as the heir of all things, who is all-powerful, who holds it all together. Now, listen. For a Jewish Christian, do you know what this would change? You're sitting and your family has ostracized you because of your faith. Your family is like, you're, you're giving up grandpa's faith do you, under, do you know what grandpa would think about this? You, you think that Jesus is the Messiah even though the high priest of the Jews 
was one of the ones at the trial of Christ who said, crucify him? That's what you're going to do? By understanding this is a piece of the character of Christ, they will be able to say, yeah, but Christ is all-powerful. Yeah, but Christ is holding this whole thing together. Yeah, but Jesus is who I serve. You see? And all of this rhetoric, and, and all of this is just introductory. The whole rest of the book of Hebrews, he's fleshing this out. So if you feel like we're not getting enough, like we got 10 months of it, so just get ready, right? But the whole picture is that Jesus literally holds the universe in his hands. Unbelievable stuff. Now the sixth thing he says here in verse 3 is Jesus isn't just all-powerful. He isn't just creator. He isn't just sustainer, but he's the purifier of all sin. Uh, For a Jew, again, the ancient uh, ritual was that you would have to kill animals and that the blood of the animal would atone for your sin. Do you see the progression here? Are you guys with me? Do you see the progression? Because you have to see this. He's the heir. Everything created through Jesus. He embodies, he reveals the character. He's all-powerful. What, what, what is the writer trying to ingrain in the reader here? Jesus is not just better than the old way. He has become so incredibly personal that all of that sin that you are impersonally repenting of, you see, you would kill an animal. And for those of you that think that think that, that was personal, it became ritualistic. I kill an animal for my sin. But now because Jesus gets personal, because Jesus is the, all, uh, the, the purifier of our sin, because of his sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection, now repentance gets personal. And Jesus is cleansing us, purifying us because of his actions, because of his death. The whole mantra of the writer here is this God that you held at arm's length because you were taught to has now gotten so incredibly personal. Isn't he a good God? You see? And as a reader, and this was probably read like a sermon, many of the scholars think. Like this, was, this whole letter probably was like stood up in front of a church just like this and just read. So we thought about doing that and just calling it a day, but we thought we may need a little bit more explanation, right? He's the purifier. And let's be honest, um, what right now for you would say just needs some purity? Would any of you say like there's just this massive area of in your heart, in your life that just needs desperately to be purified? Your promise is that he's the purifier. He does it. It's already been accomplished. Rest in that, would you? Now, here's the cool thing. Uh, the writer saves the best for last, in, in, in a sense. At least my favorite. Number seven. Jesus sits at the right hand of God. Um, in the ancient temple, there were no seats. It was by design. The priests would go to the temple and make sacrifice, and there were no seats. Well, why? Why no seats in the ancient temple? Listen, because there was always something to do. Because there was always sacrifice to be made. The sacrifices never stopped. Do you understand? So when the scripture all of a sudden says Jesus sits 
at the right hand of God. Can you begin to understand the implications? In Hebrews, we'll learn that Jesus is the great high priest, the better high priest, the good high priest. And so if all of these priests back in the Old Testament could never sit in the temple because there was always a sacrifice to be made, this line that we heard, Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, we've never really understood. Do you get it now? He sits because it's done. He sits on his seat at the right hand of God, which is the power position, the right hand of God. He sits down because the work is accomplished. The debt is paid. The ransom done. The sin purified. There's no other sacrifice that Jesus at the high priest can make. So he sits down after being ascended to heaven. As if to say, there's nothing left to do. And he said it on the cross. It is, it is finished. Now, there's so much more. On the cross he hung. In the tomb he laid. Through Jericho he walked. On the beach when he chose the disciples, you picture him strolling. When Zacchaeus climbs up a tree, he walks by, and him and Zacchaeus converse. All of these different postures. He goes from laying in a tomb, being revealed again to the disciples, ascends to heaven, and then what does Scripture say? He sits. So if Jesus is sitting, then where are you? If he's the high priest, and if after all of these postures that Jesus has gone through, he now sits, then where are you? I mean, where are you? He's seated on, he's seated on the throne. Everything's done. The debt paid for. He will come back and take his church in the end. But sin already atoned for. So where are you? Well, some of you aren't even in the ballpark. Here's the throne of Christ. Some of you are off somewhere else, bowing down and worshiping some lowercase God that will never fulfill you, and yet you're bowing to the God of lust, to the God of greed, to the God of security, to the God of safety. That's where you're at. Some of you here tonight, that's where you're at. Jesus is seated as the rightful judge, as the rightful heir, as the rightful creator, as the rightful all of these things that the writer of Hebrews says, and yet you find yourself over in la-la land on your face worshiping some God that doesn't even exist. Others of you, and this is many of us, you're standing before the seated Christ and you're pointing your finger at him. And you're trying to dictate to him how he's supposed to make your little universe work. It goes this way, Jesus. You don't understand. It, it's, this is the job that's for me. Jesus, you don't get it. This is the way I need it. This is all the blessings that you should be giving me. Some of you find yourself there tonight. Finger pointed. Trying to tell the heir of all things, the creator of all things, how things should work. And yet he's seated saying, it's, everything's done. The glory's already mine. I would say that most of you tonight find yourself like knee half bent. 
You say he's creator. You say he's God. You say he's good. You say he's redeemer. And that knee just won't hit the floor. You won't give it all up. It's just half bent. Jesus, I'm here. I'm right in front of you. I'm saying you're God. But the idea of bowing before you fully, of relinquishing everything, that's just not where I'm at. And so I'll just, I'll just give the semblance that I'm bowing. And I'll bend the knee that will give you some kind of portrayal that I do think you're king. So here I am, Jesus, bent knee. I would say many of you here tonight are right there. You're still holding on to some semblance of either glory or security or making your name great. Whatever it looks like for you. You're there. You're saying, yes, Jesus, I believe, but not quite. And there's others of you. Looking at the throne of Christ where the carpet is hiding your face. And the fibers of the carpet are catching your tears of repentance. And you bow before that great throne, the seated Christ, work accomplished, sin purified, because you know full well you have nowhere else to go. Some of you are there. And oh, the blessing of being there, isn't it? But why sometimes does it seem to last so little? Why do you feel like sometimes you get there and then pretty soon you're back up that half bent knee or you're back up pointed at Christ? What I fear is that our problem is the exact same issue that these Jewish Christians were struggling with. I want the new, but at times the old seems to taste better. But anyone who has ever tasted the grace of Christ, you know different. Let's stand together tonight.